Jen here with a quick update for new listeners. Watch with Jen began its life solely on Patreon, and while that's still the first place I publish new episodes, all of which you can listen to as soon as they drop for as little as a dollar a month, once they're unlocked to everyone, you will find them available to listen to here as well. Just a heads up if you wonder why I talk about Patreon so much for the first few shows. Thanks for listening and happy movie watching. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or at FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. And I'm back once again, hoping to offer you a little bit of escape during these nightmarish times. I hope you're keeping, if not busy, then at least preoccupied. I started doing interviews last week and have been really enjoying it, especially getting to know some of the people I've only ever met on Twitter. I spoke with one woman that I've interacted with online for about a decade, so it was great to finally hear her voice and talk and others that I've only known via text message or the occasional DM here and there. So it's been a really fun way to exchange ideas. They're all wonderful, lovely, lively people, and I can't wait to share them all with you. I also wanted to say a quick thank you so much to my Patreon subscribers that are listening. I received my first Patreon payment last week, and can't thank you enough. I know it's a tough time right now, obviously, and I completely understand if you know, you're not able to support or need to lower your amount or anything. Please don't feel bad. Just do what you need to for yourself. I'm going to be keeping these unlocked for at least a month or so and then probably start locking them up for a week to Patreon listeners only before I go ahead and unlock them for all listeners. So you'll all have access to them regardless of whether or not you're a subscriber to my Patreon. But I really thank you so much, those of you that are. It's very helpful. You guys helped fund my microphone, so that's great. Thank you so much. So without further ado, let's jump into the movies. There's an old saying in Hollywood that for filmmakers, you make one for them, or the studio, and one for yourself. And I've always admired the directors that know how to play the game. Obviously, sometimes you have no choice and you have to make whatever they're offering. But I really appreciate the filmmakers that use whatever movie they make as maybe their calling card or their first foray and then springboard it into more personal, interesting, thoughtful projects. Case in point are the filmmakers Chris and Paul Weitz. The two are brothers who burst on the scene with American Pie in the late 1990s, which was a huge Hollywood hit and made the studio a fortune. Chris was the uncredited brother on the film. Paul was named as director, but after American Pie, the two shared credit on the next few pictures that they made together, including Down to Earth in Good Company, American Dreams with a Z. But the best film that the pair made together was none other than 2002's About a Boy, which you can find right now on Star's channel. 
based on the novel by Nick Hornby and adapted by Peter Hedges, who wrote What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Pieces of April, Dan in Real Life, and others, as well as the Whites Brothers, who are very talented screenwriters in their own right. About a Boy is that rare occurrence that, just like last week with Wonder Boys, works so well that I actually wound up, as much as I enjoyed the books, preferring the film versions of the stories. The film centers on a bachelor, a Peter Pan type, exceedingly well played by Hugh Grant, who's just never grown up, coasting by on his late father's royalty checks as a hit songwriter, Will, played by Grant, lives what he calls an island life. He spends his time shopping, getting his hair cut, watching a movie, etc., and just never allowing himself to get very close to other people. That all changes when a refreshingly sane, mature breakup with a single mother finds him looking to repeat the process with someone new. Posing as a father sharing custody with his ex, he attends single parents alone together or spat meetings where he meets the sensitive young outsider Marcus played by Nicholas Holt who lives with his clinically depressed mother Tony Collette. After a startling event the two boys wind up using one another to help each other out with Marcus learning how to be cool from Will and Will using Marcus to pose as his son when he falls for a different single mother played by Rachel Weiss, who isn't a member of the Spat Club. And while on the surface it seems not unlike the quirky romantic British dramedies like Four Weddings and a Funeral that launched him all the way up through Notting Hill and Love Actually, there's a lot going on in this one, much more than meets the eye. And it's the Hugh Grant movie that I find myself watching the most. Featuring a great soundtrack with Badly Drawn Boy, whose compositions for the film I still love to listen to on Spotify today. I do have the soundtrack on CD somewhere. This is a great one to watch with your tweens and older kids, as well as when you're just looking for a heartwarming romance movie for a night in. In fact, though, the romance between Grant and Weiss is absolutely secondary to the one between Will and Marcus that matters the most. And that's precisely why the movie works as well as it does. It's genuine. It has its heart in the right place. And everyone involved is doing all they can just to serve the story. It also gives us a great opportunity to see Hugh Grant belt out Killing Me Softly, and I could just watch that on repeat like over and over again. But it's a wonderful film that I find myself recommending to others often, and I hope it's one that will delight you guys as well. Every serious fan of the Godfather trilogy remembers that awesome moment in part two when just after Frank Pentangeli walks back his testimony, when his brother arrives in the courtroom, Diane Keaton asks Al Pacino what was going on there, and he just looks at her with that new, cold, dead-eyed Michael Corleone stare and says, it was between the brothers, K. There's just something about brothers from Cain and Abel to... Steinbeck's East of Eden, which basically is Cain and Abel, to everything after, including The Godfather, 
that continues to fascinate us and at the same time inspire so much compelling drama for storytellers. And that's especially true when it comes to Gavin O'Connor's brilliant, overlooked 2011 drama Warrior, which is playing on Hulu, Amazon Prime, and Epics. A film about brotherhood, what the word really means, and the realization that nobody knows you quite like your family, Warrior tells the story of two estranged brothers played by Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton. They're very different at first glance, with Joel Edgerton's happily married father of two girls, a suburban physics teacher, contrasted by his younger brother played by Tom Hardy as a Marine with PTSD and a huge chip on his shoulder. Yet the more time we spend with the two characters in the film, the more we realize just how similar they are overall. Both are the product of a dysfunctional, abusive home life with a drunken, violent father played by Nick Nolte, who is a thousand days sober when Hardy shows up at his door after several years following not just the war, but also the death of his beloved mother, who he went to live with and take care of when they escaped Nolte's wrath many years earlier. Tommy, played by Tom Hardy, wants to work out a business arrangement with his father to train him to get ready for an open MMA fight. He doesn't want a relationship with the old man. He just wants to use him for what he's good at, which is training fighters. Fighting under his mother's maiden name, Tommy has no clue that his big brother, a UFC fighter who never really made it that big, Edgerton, is in dire straits financially after his young daughter's heart issues and has begun fighting as well to prevent the bank from foreclosing on his house. Soon winding up at the same event, just before the two are pitted to fight one another, they get into another epic verbal brawl, unloading years of pain in a way that startles us while at the same time says so much about the two men that it's like they're trading blows before they ever do. A very powerful film. It's yet another reminder that this is what Gavin O'Connor does the best. Skilled at chronicling the ups and downs of contemporary American home life, particularly when it deals with family strife, O'Connor made a splash with his breakout second feature, Tumbleweed, starring Janet McTeer, about a woman who flees her abusive ex with her daughter in tow. Following his acclaimed director for hire gig on Disney's Olympic docudrama, Miracle, with Kurt Russell, he got back to telling the same intimate domestic dramas that had put him on the map with 2008's underrated Pride and Glory with Edward Norton and Colin Farrell, and then moved on to Warrior, Jane Got a Gun, and the new Ben Affleck drama The Way Back, among others. Known for his strong ensemble casts, O'Connor is someone you can tell that takes the moral codes of loyalty and brotherhood from his films seriously, as he often works with the same actors again and again, most notably one of my favorite scene stealers, Noah Emmerich, who does share one vital mini-scene with Joel Edgerton here. Anchored by its leads, part of the reason it was overlooked in 2011 is because it came out one year after David O. Russell's Oscar winner, The Fighter. And while that was a good film, 
Warrior is a great one that manages to play well, not only to those who love UFC and MMA, but also others like me, who, despite loving a great underdog fighter story in theory, doesn't watch the fights, and are also fascinated by its clever intertextuality and the way that O'Connor uses both Nolte's Moby Dick audiobook and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Ode to Joy, is about brotherhood and peace, after all, as effective motifs throughout the movie. One of my favorite movies from 2011, Warrior Hits as Hard as It Moves Us, and it's one that I think you'll want to share with others, and also just might be the movie that makes you pick up the phone to call your brother. Worried that her sister quit her job to work with her boss because he's handsome, when Bonnie Hunt hears that Renee Zellweger has invited her new boss over because he is having a rotten day in Jerry Maguire, Bonnie Hunt levels with her. He better not be good looking. And then there's a great cut and it opens and it's Tom Cruise in the sunglasses and suit looking GQ ready. And, you know, it gets one of the biggest laughs of Jerry Maguire. Movie stars playing their alter ego or Tom Cruise playing the, you could put in quotes, Tom Cruise, or Cary Grant even said once that he wanted to be Cary Grant is always an interesting phenomenon. And it works so well in Paul Feig's A Simple Favor, which came out in 2018 and stars Blake Lively poking a lot of fun at herself in the Gossip Girl series, which honestly I enjoyed. I watched with friends. We would email each other. I got the biggest kick out of that show, but she's definitely having fun with her status as a cover girl, and it, it just works. The type of cool girl that was described in that famous monologue from Gone Girl. Blake Lively with her 60s French pop music and her martinis that are perfectly made is easily the coolest girl in the room in A Simple Favor. And she catches the eye of a fellow mother played by Anna Kendrick as Stephanie Smothers, who as the name indicates, is kind of a smother mother, overly maternal, sort of a pixie Mary Poppins. And she meets Blake Lively's character, Emily Nelson. Their kids play together. They form an unlikely friendship because on the surface, it seems like these two women would have nothing in common, except for the fact that their kids go to the same elementary school. But then when Emily suddenly goes missing, Stephanie who has a parenting vlog, decides to take it upon herself to investigate. Then things start to get really interesting and really twisted. A Simple Favor was based on a novel by Darcy Bell, which I haven't read. It's one of many that I have sitting there on my Kindle. I'm kind of a habitual book buyer. I have way too many books. But then again, can you really have too many books? I don't think so. The novel was adapted by Jessica Scharzer, who is really an old hand now at adapting great books, especially female-driven ones. Anyone who I worked in a middle school library knows that Speak was a 
very popular book with kids. It was also very controversial and banned in a bunch of schools. She wrote a stunning adaptation of Speak, which was made into a movie with Kristen Stewart way back in the day. Scharzer also adapted Nerve, which became a kind of a sleeper film from 2016, which honestly, I would say you should really seek out. It has Emma Roberts, one of those be careful what app you download on your phone type of thrillers, but it really, it gets your heart rate up. I think it deserved better. It was very entertaining. When you think of Paul Feig, you think of his great television work helming some of the best comedies of the last 20 years, as well as, of course, his awesome big screen comedies, including Bridesmaids, which sort of launched him into the stratosphere of super director because it was a massive hit. I am one of those rare people for as much as I enjoy Bridesmaids, Spy is actually my favorite film that Paul Feig had made. It stars Melissa McCarthy, Jason Statham, Rose Byrne, Jude Law. It's one of those laugh-till-you-actually-physically-hurt movies. And every time Jason Statham is in a scene, I basically almost fall down to the ground laughing. He, His conviction, his just intensity as a sort of, again, a play on his own uber-masculine image is just to die for. So if you haven't seen Spy or it's been a while, put it on because it's perfect for what we're going through right now. It'll definitely distract you. But I was really glad to see Feig kind of break out of his comfort zone with a simple favor showing his dark side. And I believe the trailer even introduced it as that, like the dark side of Paul Feig, which was kind of amusing. The film is available right now on Amazon Prime and Hulu. It's also available for rent at pretty much any online retailer. It's gorgeously shot by John Schwartzman, who's kind of a house director for Universal. He's helmed really awesome movies over the last 30-some years, including Benny and June, which is one of my favorites. Some of the Michael Bay films, The Rock and Pearl Harbor. He also did Seabiscuit, The National Treasures, Jurassic World. And even though the movies themselves might be abysmal, you can't deny that they're really well made and gorgeously shot. The Fifty Shades films, number two and three, were also shot by John Schwartzman. So he has this regal gravitas that he lends to a simple favor. He put it together with the gorgeous cinematography and, of course, the 60s French pop music that sort of follows... Blake Lively's character everywhere she goes and stands in for her when she goes missing and then is adopted by Anna Kendrick. And it's an altogether escapist movie. It seems like something you would have had in the 1940s, actually, is when they started doing those stereotypical quote-unquote women's pictures. And then the 50s was the era of the melodramas where women led some really great mysteries and some interesting plays on domestic life and how the facade of perfection is it's like a house of cards it's going to collapse which I love and responded to for another reason on a totally different level I do not have children I'm not married I have a proud aunt I love my nieces and nephew but the thing that I responded to with the facade of perfection because it's something 
that I notice in myself. I've been doing this for, I would say, at least 25 years where because of a disability or because of some other quality, you sort of present yourself as as perfect as you can be. And I really loved that in this film, they gave Blake Lively a cane for no reason. She enters a scene like a stunning Marlena Dietrich. And yes, she's kind of just playing a Mar- Marlena Dietrich sort of half masculine, half feminine character. But as somebody who does use a cane on occasion, I just ate that up with a spoon. It was awesome to see this stunning woman just walking around with a cane. Very cool. And as somebody who just loves fashion in general, this movie is like a Vogue magazine come to life. So it's appealing on a number of levels. Anna Kendrick is absolutely hilarious. She gets a great reading of a line involving knees. Sweetie, your knees! At the end of the movie, which I can't go into the source or what's going on, but it just kills me every time. And it's the line that has stuck with me since the last time I saw this, which has to be two years ago. So if you haven't seen it and are looking for something different, a comedic mystery, a comedic thriller, I really cannot recommend A Simple Favor enough. Just like The Royal Tenenbaums is the best Wes Anderson movie, but I still watch Bottle Rocket the most. When it comes to Billy Wilder, The Apartment, of course, is his best film as far as I'm concerned. But the one I watch the most is our next choice, Love in the Afternoon from 1957, which is playing right now on Criterion, and it's leaving at the end of April. So step on it. A flawed film, but a very entertaining one. It was the first of 12 scripts that Billy Wilder wrote with his best screenwriting partner, I.A.L. Diamond. The story of how they met is actually very interesting. Wilder contacted him after he read an article that Diamond had written for a screenwriting magazine and just reached out out of the blue and the two of them started working together. Wilder wanted to do a remake of a German film that he had co-written in 1932 called Scampolo, A Child of the Street, which was based on the novel Ariane, Young Russian Girl by Claude Anet. The book had actually been adapted a couple times in Germany. There had been one called Just Scampolo in 1928, and it was also remade in 1931 in Germany as Ariane. Love in the Afternoon stars Audrey Hepburn, his Sabrina star. He reteamed with her once again. And Gary Cooper and Maurice Chevalier, who famously said he would give away his grandma's secret bouillabaisse recipe to be in a Billy Wilder movie. In the film, which takes place and was shot in Paris, Maurice Chevalier plays a private detective who spends his time mostly tailing husbands and wives who are unfaithful and bringing back the dirty pictures to share with the poor spouse who hired him. His daughter is a cello student, Audrey Hepburn, who is fascinated by her dad's work, especially when it comes to a middle-aged American playboy named Frank Flanagan, whose exploits are legendary. He's been with pretty much every woman around the world. Of course, that is Gary Cooper. And at the beginning of the movie, she goes to alert Frank Flanagan when 
they're coming to trap him in order to save him from a spouse with a gun. She poses as his lover just in the quick heat of the moment. And afterwards, the two of them get involved. He seduces her. She's very willing, of course. She has a huge crush on him. And then they meet again a year later, and she does not want him to think that she's been sitting there pining for him. So she creates a fictional list of lovers and her own sexploits in order to rival his own. And there's a really lovely scene where he is rocking a bar cart back and forth and running a bath as he listens to her long list of lovers that he had her record, which is always a bad idea, I think, when you're dating somebody. Like, I don't want to know your entire romantic history because I don't want to obsess about it. And what's important is who you are today. But Gary Cooper was, I think looking at it originally as sort of a sporting joke, like who has had the most adventures, shall we say? Of course, while he listens to it, he grows increasingly jealous and realizes he's in love with her. And it's actually on his end, pretty much a wordless scene. He just plays the recording over and over again, and the bath overflows. And it's just brilliant. As much as we think Billy Wilder is so good at these pitch perfect dialogue scenes, he also really knew how to capture a character's essence in pictures. And that's so important, especially when it comes from somebody who started as a writer. The one big flaw of the film is, and I love Gary Cooper, but possibly the chemistry between Audrey Hepburn and Gary Cooper. Now, I had read her uh, autobiography years back, and she talked about how much she had a crush on Gary Cooper when they made this, and she enjoyed kissing him, which kind of reminded me of Jane Fonda and Robert Redford when somebody came up and asked her what was it like to do barefoot in the park and kiss Robert Redford, and she just said she's sure she got googly eyes and said, heaven. So uh, I think for Audrey Hepburn, kissing Gary Cooper was heaven as well. But their chemistry doesn't really ring true, partly because of the huge age difference. And I don't want to be weird about that. Um, I've usually dated people who are a little bit older, not like 30 years older or anything. So I don't want to be too weird about that because in some films it actually works well. So I did never want to say, oh, you can't have an age difference. But in this case, Gary Cooper just seemed sort of ragged and it was a huge contrast between him and Audrey Hepburn, especially because they made her character, as Wilder even admits, really virginal. It was right after Sabrina, where he paired her with Humphrey Bogart. So it was on Billy Wilder's mind as well. Originally, he wanted Cary Grant. That was his first choice. Interestingly enough, and I have no idea why this is, Cary Grant never said yes to a Billy Wilder film. He never explained why. Wilder never specifically asked. He just told Cameron Crowe in this great book, Conversations with Wilder, that Cary Grant had very specific ideas about the films he wanted to make and the roles he wanted to play. And unfortunately, they just never overlapped. Yul Brenner was a second choice, and boy, I would have loved to have seen that as well. Of course, Cary Grant did co-star with Audrey Hepburn in Charade, and they were great together. And you do wonder what it would have been like, possibly, with somebody with a little bit more chemistry with Audrey. But even without, it's just so fun. 
And I think it's probably my favorite. Again, Roman Holiday is the best Audrey Hepburn film. And I do watch that one a hell of a lot. But I think this might be my favorite Audrey Hepburn performance because for all of its charms, Roman Holiday is more the story of Gregory Peck's character. And in this case, yes, I think probably Gary Cooper dominates those scenes, but our heart is with Audrey from start to finish. Wilder looked at her like his characters. He told Cameron Crowe that to him the characters did exist off the page. He admits that he was attracted to Gloria Swanson when he made Sunset Boulevard and Barbara Stanwyck when he made Double Indemnity, but he says he never was attracted to Audrey because to him she was that princess in Roman Holiday or the chauffeur's daughter in Sabrina. He always said that she he loved working with Audrey and she would always cheer him up and he had no idea about her affairs with Costa of course, the Tord affair with William Holden, who I believe was married at the time. And he said he didn't know about like a lot of that stuff that was going on. And so he wondered what it would have been like had he known. But to him, Audrey was the girl on the screen. And I think his affection for her really makes this one special and our affection for her as well. I know everybody, when they think of Audrey, they usually think of Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is an iconic film, but it's a hard one to rewatch. I mean, that stereotype with Mickey Rooney is just so cringe-inducing, but this one, to me, is iconic Audrey, the sweet yet mischievous girl who follows her heart and gets in adventures and carries us right along with her. So it's quintessential Audrey and it's quintessential Wilder. As Mina Suvari's Angela Hayes said in American Beauty, I don't think there's anything worse than being ordinary. Released in 1999, this same type of existential yearning that used to be reserved for teenagers coming of age started to recur in the various forms of pop culture we consumed with haste. Right on the verge of the millennium, when the world was more visible and more connected than ever online, we began questioning more than ever just what, if anything, would set us apart from the rest of the pack. It's this exact same sense of panic that prefaces the imposter writer-director Bart Layton's Darwinian-tinged true crime docudrama American Animals from 2018, about four Kentucky college students in 2003 who spend their time looking out of the windows of their classes, dorms, cars, jobs, for that special thing they feel they need for their lives to truly begin. Finding if not that, then at least a sense of purpose in the form of $12 million worth of rare books housed in the Transylvania University Library, What starts out as a hypothetical discussion of if we were going to steal the books, how would we do it, soon turns into their ticket out of suburbia battle cry. Renting every single heist movie available at Blockbuster and putting the skills of their talented artist friend Spencer Reinhardt to good use, sketching the entire layout of the Transylvania Library, eventually the casualness of the what-if game falls away and leads to the start of a plan. 
Soon Spencer's risk-taking alpha male friend Warren Lipka, brilliantly played by Evan Peters, who steals every scene he's in in American Horror Story, is kind of the reason to keep watching even when that show sucks, begins building bridges to the outside world in preparation. It gives them the chance to trade their local surroundings for the big bad world just however briefly and they return to Kentucky fully invigorated and ready to go, recruiting like-minded friends into the fold, a no-nonsense problem solver, a wheelman who's just in it for the cash. But rather than simply turn fact into fiction, Bart Layton offers viewers the best of both worlds. He falls back on his strengths as a documentary filmmaker, weaving footage from interviews he shot with a group of the four, the Transylvania University librarian, as well as their family and friends, and puts them all into the narrative. He dares to use one mother's heartbreaking admission that she felt like she woke up in a nightmare when she heard the news of her son's crime. Leighton infuses the film with a sense of doom and remorse right from the start. He's never glamorizing it. At the same time, he fights against all of those emotions to create a great piece of thoughtful entertainment about how the 21st century's new lost generation, who today you might see trying to get their 15 minutes of YouTube fame or 50,000th Twitter follower, and instead gives us a very real, very earnest look at peer pressure and masculine identity and coming of age with American animals. Cinema usually saves existential questioning and societal alienation for like middle-aged males and adolescent angst for just beautiful young women. Think of, for example, Kevin Spacey and Mina Suvari in American Beauty, respectively, as long as we're talking about another American film. Yet, writer-director Layton's willingness to work these themes into an already complex, multi-character-driven storyline helps set his film apart by devoting more time to questions of who and why, as opposed to the heist genre's obsession with where, when, and how. He uses actors to embody the real-life counterparts more in spirit than just going for look-alikes, casts The Handmaid's Tales, and Dowd as the librarian with the misfortune of safeguarding the collection they've made their raison d'etre. He represents the competing, often contradictory recollections of the men involved. Everybody remembers things differently, and rather than try to put it all together and come up with just one definitive approach, he lets all of the information in, which makes the movie so much more interesting to watch. And while sure, at times he does seem to struggle with all of the information that he's gathered, and it will maybe send you to the internet looking for more details on certain aspects of the crime or the players involved. Still, it's an amazing mix of fact and fiction. In any case, the fact that we leave the movie wanting to know more about these boys is a sign of more than anything how much Leighton's docudrama completely reels you in. The movie is playing right now on HBO. It was released kind of in late summer of 2018, and despite doing well at the festival circuit earlier on, just didn't pick up the buzz that it should have. And much like A Simple Favor really deserves another look as two of the more interesting films released in 2018. 
And there you have this week's five recommendations. Once again, it was about a boy, which you can find on Stars, Warrior, which is available on Hulu, Amazon, and Epics, A Simple Favor, which is on Amazon Prime and Hulu, Love in the Afternoon is on Criterion, but it does leave at the end of the month, and American Animals is on HBO. I want to thank you so much for listening. I've received some really kind emails from a few of you over the last couple of weeks, letting me know that the show is helping distract you during these times and that's the highest praise I could receive and inspires me to keep going. So I hope this will keep getting better and continue to give you some great movies to look forward to. I know a few of you are working your way through them. I love hearing from you when you do get a chance to watch. Shout out to Jacob, who just this weekend tracked down Cop Car and Hearts Beat Loud, which is incredibly cool of you. And I'm glad that you enjoyed them as much as I did. So once again, I want to wish you guys a safe, healthy, happy week. Take care, and I will see you next time. I am Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd, and this is Watch With Jen.